What did you think I would do at this moment when you're standing before me with tears in your eyes trying to tell me that you have found you another you just don't love me Hey everybody, it's John. Welcome back. All right, this week we are talking to Billy Vera. Now, most people know Billy Vera from one of the flukiest number one songs in rock history. In 1987, January of 1987, at this moment, reached number one on the charts. And as many of you may remember, it got thrusted into the spotlight when it appeared on a couple episodes of Family Ties. What you may not know is that song actually had already come out in 1981 and didn't do anything. And now suddenly, because it appeared on Family Ties, which back then was a gigantic show, it became a number one hit. What most people may not realize is that Billy Vera had actually been around for about 20 years before that and has been around doing things ever since. In fact, he's had a very long and varied career. There's a lot of acting. There's a lot of voiceovers, there's a lot of jingles and theme songs singing, but he has carved out a very successful career for himself that the average person who remembers at this moment probably has no idea about. He's in his early 70s, and his career has been going since the 60s, early 60s. It's a pretty crazy story. Wait till you hear some of this stuff. He called me from his home in L.A. Billy, first of all, thank you for joining me. One of the things that I, I've come to terms with in terms of your career, as I've been doing all this research about you, I lovingly, and I say, I want to stress this, I lovingly refer to you now as, as a lifer. You're somebody who, right? I mean, you've been a blue-collar show business music guy pretty much your entire life. And I don't know if everyone knows that. It's, I don't know if the common person who loves at this moment in their minds, you may have come from nowhere, shot like a shooting star, and then went back to obscurity, and that's not the case. You sort of maintained a hum, and then there was a really big glitch in the EKG, and then it went back to maintaining another hum, right? Yeah, I've been doing this since I was about 16, 17 years old, so I'm a lot older than that now. <laughs> So I'm guessing, I mean, your folks were in show business, your mom sang with Ray Charles. Were you growing up with sort of uh, witnessing what you con considered to be sort of a model of how the business works, how you wanted to live your life, how you wanted to fit yourself into that business? I imagine these influences are just huge on you. Well, having parents in show business is, is a good thing in terms of uh, you learn professionalism, you know, you learn to show up on time and, you know, suit up and, and how to comport yourself. Um, so I, you know, I, my parents were very professional. My dad was a, an announcer, a staff announcer on NBC in New York. And my mother was in the Ray Charles Singers on the Perry Como show and on his records, his hit records. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I was always around show business. Of course, then... You know, when I was about 11 years old, there was this little thing came on the scene called rock and roll, mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, I fell in love with that music and you know the 
Fats Dominoes and the Frankie Lyman's sure. and the Chuck Berry's and the Little Richards and all these people. And so I added that to my resume or my repertoire or whatever because my sure. mother was she brought home some pretty great records too. You know, she she brought home uh, the, the the great Sinatra records and mm-hmm. she had Nancy Wilson records and Nat King Cole records and Duke Ellington who became a major hero of mine. Nice. Right. And uh, and so I, I was always around music and and show business. You know, she'd take me to mm-hmm. the down to the Ziegfeld Theater in New York, and I'd sit in the dressing room with all these half-naked dancers and singers. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> as a little boy, you're like, this is a good life. I, I could do this yeah, forever, show business right? Is a good thing, yeah. <laughs> or I'd sit with my dad in the in the in the announcers uh, lounge or, or in the booth where he'd he'd uh, be. Saying things like uh, "This is NBC New York," you know, and stuff uh-huh. like that. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, you know, because I, I was thinking, I, so I'm. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and if I had had an inclination to write a song and put it to wax, and I would have uh, these. I was not. It was not bred in me to have even known where to begin to doing something like that. But you were given a model. Almost at birth, you can see the path, right? I mean, I, I would think there are so many creative people in this world who would love to do something and have no idea even where to begin. Yeah. Whereas yeah, you saw true. the path in front of you, right? If I, I if I record a song, I know where to send it. I know who's going to hear it, yeah. and we'll see what happens, right? And 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 as well, you know, my mother introduced me to her vocal coach. You know, when they saw that I was interested in. Music. They got me lessons. You know, my mother's vocal coach introduced me to a manager, so I I, I got on yeah. that path of of knowing where to take my songs. You know, where yeah. to where to go and who to see. And it was just you know after after I got a high school in the afternoon, I'd hop on train into the city and beat a path yeah. to uh, this Do publisher it. or that publisher. Not only have you probably never done anything else, it's probably never even occurred to you to do anything else. <laughs> the, right? the only thing I did, I, I, when I was about 16, I, I wanted to make some money. So there was a country club nearby uh, that I could walk to. And I, uh-huh. was, I was too skinny to carry golf clubs on my back, you know, like, right. the, like the tough guys did in the uh-huh. neighborhood. So I, I became a busboy for a year. And, oh, wow. And I I learned that I did not want to do anything outside of show business. <laughs> uh, yeah. I can either have Ricky Nelson sing my songs or I can clean up after rich people. Which one would I rather do? I walk in a crowd Hiding tears I can't cry out loud I can't let them see me cry tell you it's me oh world when you need someone I sit in my room it's a room filled with gloom I sit and wait by the telephone but no one cares if I'm all alone and it's a me Let me tell you it's a mean old world when you need someone. So Ricky Nelson, was that your first 
that was your first one, right? You submitted a song someplace. That was not and, only my first hit; it was the first song I ever took to a publisher. Uh, tell me about that. So, did you did you take it to him with the intention of it getting to Ricky Nelson, not or at you, all. was it for you, or what was the story there? Well, we had we my little band had made a record that came out on this label, Rust Records, which is a subsidiary of Laurie Records. Mm-hmm. The, the the label that had Dion and the Belmonts, and so the, the, our record didn't do much, but I had written one one side of our record, and so they asked me. They said, you know, that's a really good song. Do you, do you have any more songs? And so I made an appointment with the guy that ran the publishing arm of the of the record company, and I played him I don't know four or five things, and he took two of them. Mm-hmm. Maybe thirty-five dollars a piece for him. No way. And uh, <laughs> in advance, you know, uh-huh. and paid for my little band to come in and make demos of them. This one song I, I had written with this new girl in mind that I had heard on the radio named Dion Warwick. Mm. And so a few weeks later, uh, he calls me up. His name was Larry Spear. Mm. And uh, Larry Spear called me up one morning. He said, "I got a record on one of your songs." I said, which one? He said, Mean Old World. I said, oh, did you give me that, that girl? Not knowing that Bert Backrack and Hal David had mm-hmm. her all tied up. Yeah, she was a little no, busy. He said, I got you Ricky Nelson. I said, Ricky Nelson? He's white. <laughs> and, <laughs> so that was not your intention, to have no, a white person not, record not your all, song? You know, and, and, yeah. you know, and he said, you ungrateful little putts. He said, Ricky's going to do your song five weeks in a row on the Ozzy and Harriet show, and you're, you're virtually guaranteed to have a, a, a hit record. So that's what happened. And I Crazy. Uh, yeah. And Ricky did a great job on it. He did. I loved it. Yeah. And that's I was watching the clip. On, now, I'm 42, so this was all way before my time. Mm-hmm. But I would I mean, most people tell the story of hearing their song on the radio for the first time. Your story is you saw the guy actually perform it on, like, the most popular show in America, <laughs> right. right? Right. There's a huge difference there. You must have, were you yeah. just sitting, like, cross-legged on the floor in front of your little TV watching Ricky Nelson sing your song? Oh, I was like, wow, you know, this is a big deal, you know? Yes. I, you know, I, I mean, in a sense it was, but in another sense it was, you know, I saw my mother every week on television. Yeah. But this was something of mine. Yeah. So I was I was off talk about beginner's luck. So this kind of continues for you and you start doing your own stuff. But one thing that I thought was really interesting in your bio was you were saying how basically once, you know, the sixties that we know of, the hippie sixties, right? The flower power and the seventies came along, you were kind of there wasn't much going on for you during that period. Oh, it's a right? terrible time. I, I but just so your listeners know, I, I had a couple of you know hits as a writer and then also as an artist. True. Uh, before that, you know, I, you and Judy I, Clay, right? I had, yeah, I made storybook children and Country Girl City Man with got Judy Clay. And I've got mine, and it's a shame to grown up words. That will never be the same Why can't 
But uh, but once everything changed, then I you know things got a little tough, and yeah. I put to, I went back to my mother's house and I put together a little trio, and we would work uh, wherever we could go. And this it, yeah. it turned out uh, an agent uh, was a fan of mine. And he, his name was Neil Hollander, and he, um, he said, uh, you know, you're great, and I'll get you, I'll get you little gigs. It won't be paying much, but I'll get you gigs. Right. Because you got a trio. So a typical week, week would uh-huh. be a mafia club in New Jersey on yes. Monday. Yeah. Where I was competing with a topless go-go dancer. <laughs> in a cage above the stage. Right. Tuesday would be a cop and fireman bar in the Bronx. Yeah. Wednesday would be a polyester singles bar in Long Island. Right. Thursday would be a hippie club where, you know, yeah. and I had to figure out how to fit in in all these places. Yeah. But but yeah. without change, I'd have to find a persona that was me, sure. but that would appeal to these this wide variety of people. And it was a great... Rather than feel sorry for myself, sure. What I did was, I, I used it as a learning experience. Were you altering your sound? I mean, so here's what I'm imagining: the Billy Vera that I am familiar with is a sort of a blue-eyed soul singer who is steeped in like the doo-wop and the early rock and the soul and R&B music of the 50s and 60s. That's the guy I'm imagining. That's who and it was. Yeah. That's what I figured. So is it you and your trio? Are you going to these various clubs and singing that kind of music, or are you altering the sound per your location? Well, this crowd is more of a folky crowd. We're going to have to sing Age of Aquarius for these guys instead no, I of... I wouldn't do that, but I was trying okay. to find a, 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 a single persona that would work in all those places and okay. still be myself. Because I, I, yeah. I was savvy enough to know that when you do what you described, mm-hmm. that that was your that was a train ticket to oblivion, you know, via just a stupid top forty band playing the, the latest hits in right. clubs, and and that was a dead end. I knew that, and mm-hmm. but but I also had to survive. Right. So one of the ways of doing that, and this agent, you know, during the early seventies in New York, there was an oldies revival, a fifties oldies revival. And so a lot of these old acts that I grew up on were starting to work again. Mm-hmm. And they were working in, in theaters. There'd be theater shows. And there would be sometimes these little clubs would book on a week weeknight. Uh, they might book in the Cleftones or the Shirelles or okay. the Coasters or somebody like that. And so I knew all that music, and I was being a singer I knew what singers needed, so I was able to be a good conductor. And so we 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 backed we would back these acts. Right on. Even in my even in the early days, in our early days, we we were the house band at this this really good club. This is before oh, cool. the, the hits. That on weekends, and we would do two dance sets, and then we'd do two shows backing whoever was the latest. Okay. Know, hit record, soul, or R and B acts. Did you have any name recognition of your own? Were I mean, again, I'm probably too young. Were the mm-hmm. songs that you 
put out under your own name or with Judy Clay or that you wrote for others, were you enough of, did you have much of a name recognition going for you that people would see your name on a marquee and think, oh, I like his stuff. I'm going to go see that show. Or are you sort of reminding listeners as you're there, hey, I'm the guy who wrote this. You mean when the records were hot or I mean later? Well, when it started to slow down. When you're, when you are out with your trio, I guess I'm just, well, even when they were hot, honestly, I mean, were you, did you have a name? Did you have a following or, when, you know? When, when the records were hot, you know, you would work off your hit record. Yeah. You know, you would get work and you'd be hired to be the show that night. You'd be the act, sure. that we, the okay. kind of act that we used to back. Right. Right. So, but later, uh, when the when the 70s came about, you know, I mean, there'd be people in the New York area, because I didn't travel, uh, mm. uh, but they there were people that remembered who I, you know, my, my hits of three or four or okay. five years That's earlier. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. Okay. But, it wasn't really enough, you know, to to draw big yeah. big crowds. Okay. So you know, we had to do it just because we were, you know, fairly mm-hmm. good, or because they the younger people started to know us. So, in fact, the one thing that was kind of funny uh, at that Thursday club where all the little hippies would come in, you know, I'd be playing these. Chuck Berry songs or Little Junior Parker blues songs, and mm-hmm. and they'd say, "Oh man, do that song by uh, the Rolling Stones again, or do that mm. song by the Grateful Dead again." And I said, "I don't do really? that songs by the Stones or the Grateful Dead." Yeah. And I realized that that this was songs that the Stones or the Grateful Dead had covered. Really. But we, but I, I'd be telling them that it was telling them, I, you know, in my stage. Yeah. Player, I'd be saying yeah. who the original record. Right. Myself not even knowing that the story yes. was grateful that it done. So here I'm educating these, these kids. Yes. And so these so all of a sudden this whole group of about twenty little hippies used to start following us around. And it was kinda of cool, you know. Right. Got because it. They'd show okay. up at these clubs where, you know, they might not be exactly welcome. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they were sweet kids and they and, and uh and nobody was really mean to them. You know, yeah. they'd, they'd sit at a table by themselves, and they 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 became sort of like little unexpected fans of ours. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and that went on for like ten years, well, right? I mean, you on. sustained yeah, yourself yeah. by singing in clubs, Sometimes, primarily I mean, for ten years. Some of the years. gigs were really rough. You know, uh, you you might have to do a, a, a week or two at a at a Ramada Inn or a, mm. you know a Holiday Inn, and those mm-hmm. were tough gigs because on the weekends you'd get a crowd, but during the week you'd be playing to like three businessmen right, know, right. who hated you because the waitresses were talking to you instead of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, man. And you're married all this time with a kid. No, no, I mean, no. My marriage only lasted two years. So oh, okay. I was rock and roll bachelor again. I was going to say, that would have been even harder having to sustain a family scraping by like that. For yeah. ten years. No, yeah. I was paying child support and you know and all that. But uh, okay. again, living with my mother, I was, uh, and she charged me rent, of course. And, <laughs> good. All right. Which, which is good. Which is a good thing. Again, it was, sure. It was a good thing because it, you know, you don't. Uh, my sister didn't get charged rent and sort of infantilized her. Mm, so she yeah, I know how that up. is. Yeah. Yeah, that's happened in 
my family as well. Okay, so then the fortunes change a little bit with Dolly Parton, and you got to tell me how how did Dolly Parton get her hands on a song by you? And again, is this another thing like Ricky Nelson, where you submit a song to a publisher and it makes its way to Dolly Parton, or did you write it with her in mind? How does this happen? friend of mine had a little country band up in Connecticut 
and um, he had a girl singer. So we went in and we recorded the song with her, mm-hmm. my friend and I. We t- we took, the, or I took the song around to wherever people would still answer the phone to me at this point. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. by now it's 1978. Okay. And everywhere I went, the girl was lazy and she didn't learn the song properly. And is this a, I went, you don't have to say, but is this someone we would know? No. Okay. No, she was bad. that's how lazy she was. She never okay. Was well, I didn't know if she was some famous woman that you were, you know, singing for. Anyway, okay. No, it's just a girl in my friend's band. Okay. So everywhere we went, they, they said, love the song, hate the girl. Love the song, hate the girl. Mm. I mean, everywhere. So now I'm down to the last guy on my list. And I play the, I go to his office and I play the song for him. And he says, love the song, hate the girl, but... Mm. We're recording Dolly Parton next week. He said, give me the song for her, and I'll guarantee you it'll be the single. What? So she was just coming off, you know, her big hit, Here You Come Again. Yeah. And, Classic. Uh, yeah. So I said, you got it. And I said, well, I didn't trust him, so I said, put it in writing and give me some money. Uh-huh. So I figured yep. he'd give me a couple of hundred bucks, you know. Right. So I didn't even when he when his when he he had his girl write out the check and you know he signed it put it in an envelope and I'm going down in the elevator and I had my little girlfriend with me and she couldn't wait anymore she says give me that envelope and she <laughs> she says holy shit baby he gave you twenty five hundred dollars what which no. in 1978 to me was a well, fortune. especially for a struggling artist right yeah in one shot no it was way a fortune. Yeah. So we went to a nice restaurant that night. <laughs> of course. And uh, and and I knew he was serious. So, yeah. you know, in the interim now, before the record came out, my old manager from the Billy and Judy, my Atlantic Records days, called me from California, and he said, uh, listen, uh, I'm broke, and uh, and I need to make a deal. He said, you're the only guy I know that's, that's really great and hasn't made it yet. Mm. He said, how about if I get you a record deal? Okay. I said, sure, go ahead. He said, send me a tape. So I sent him a tape with a couple of songs. And, uh, you know, a few weeks later he calls me up and he says, uh, well, uh, Eddie Silvers from Warner Brothers uh, wants to sign you as a, not a record deal, but a songwriter, as a songwriter. Mm. Okay. He says, the only thing is you got to move out here. Mm-hmm. Well, I figured I'd, you know. Sure. You've done the New York thing for a while. I'd done enough New York, yeah. Yeah. So so I said, okay. And and I packed everything I had in my little car, and, and I drove across the country, and every 20 minutes they're playing my song by Dolly Parton. No way. Now, I hadn't had a hit record in nine years. Yeah. And every time, so the day I reached LA, it hit number one. No way. On the country charts, and I said I figured it was an omen. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I, so I, I ran into my my old bass player. Well, one a guy who used to play bass for me in New York. He had moved out here a couple of years earlier. And uh, and he said, "What are you doing on the weekend?" I said, "I don't know. I, I don't know anybody here. You know, I'm just." Mm-hmm. the Warner Brothers every day and try to write songs and 
He said, why don't you come out? Uh, I said, I'm playing with some really good musicians on the weekend uh, by the beach. And uh, wow. come out and see the band, maybe sing a couple of songs or something. So I, I, I went. And uh, and these guys were really good. And, and so Did I read, uh, forgive me for interrupting, but I, I read, I think, if, I don't remember where I read it, maybe, maybe in Wikipedia, I'm not sure. But was this the band that included... T-Bone Walk, Skunk Baxter, John Leventhal. So you had those three guys in your band back in New York? Yeah. The first record that Tommy Woke ever made was one of mine. Gosh, that's like a Hall of Fame right there. Those three. Johnny Leventhal was, was, you know, he was my guitar player. He played pedal steel and uh, great guitar, too. Yeah, that was my last band I had in New York. Wow. Yeah. Are you watching them, you know, their careers kind of take off and you remain I behind a little really, bit, or are you all kind of doing it at one time? It was somewhat concurrent. Okay. Uh, uh, what had happened was once I, I started, I mean, they were fine, fine musicians, as you know. Once I got out here and, and, we, and we started the Beaters, yeah. And we became locally famous uh, fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. We, uh, uh, we, we, we started playing Monday nights at midnight at the Troubadour, the world-famous Troubadour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and within two weeks, there was lines around the block at midnight. That's amazing. Monday nights. And we were like the hottest band in town. Yeah. But nobody, and all these, these record company guys would come in to see us, but nobody would sign us. Did they just figure you were too niche, you know, punk and new wave and is what's happening? And as good as Billy Vera is as a soul singer and an R&B singer with horns and everything, big band, that's just not where it's at today. We wouldn't know what to do with Billy Vera if we signed him. Is that the thinking? That's partially you think? it. You know, there was this band mm-hmm. called The Knack that had a... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They were a great band, but, but the record, a lot of these record company people are really stupid. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they see something that's hot, that's happening, that has a hit, and then they want to sign a, a band that's like that. Mm-hmm. So they all wanted to sign another four-piece, two-guitar, bass, and drums band. Yeah. We were the opposite of that. Right. So they all come in. They were enjoying the hell out of us. You know, I'd see them clapping and snapping their fingers, these guys mm-hmm. from record companies, and, and smiling, and they were happy. The music made them happy. Sure. But nobody reached for their wallet. Right. So uh, it, it took almost exactly a year, and then when all those those copy bands failed, <laughs> as they mm-hmm. always do, mm-hmm. then they start looking for something different. Then they then they realize they to keep their jobs they got to get a little creative. Of course, yeah. Well, we had for three sure. offers in one week. Oh wow! And so we decided to choose. Uh, Alpha Records, which is yeah. a Japanese label. I uh, I interviewed Tony Ortiz, who was the lead singer of the Monroes, oh, who you yes. may remember, they were also on Alpha. Yeah. And he, I mean, he never recovered, basically. Well, not really. Not professionally in show business as a singer. Never really recovered from Alpha going bankrupt and pretty much ending the Monroes trajectory, you know? Yeah. So I'm wondering. I mean, you obviously made it out okay, but it turned out I, I, I can't imagine Alpha was that much better 
for you, or maybe it was. Just well, getting signed they, meant something. The reason I chose them, because we got, uh, instead of the two major labels that, that mm-hmm. also offered, they said we'd be the first act to have a record out on a label. So I figured we'd get the big push. Mm-hmm. You know, the first act always gets the big push with, with right. the, okay. all this Japanese money. Mm-hmm. So we went with them, and we got a hit record called I Can Take Care of Myself. Your wardrobe's purchased at the latest boutique. Your place is furnished like the president's suite. Your freezer's filled up with the finest of meat. Somehow you manage on a hundred a week. They say you like to feel white gold on your neck. They say when you make love, you like to direct. And that new sports car you proceeded to wreck. They say I ought to ask who picked up the check. I can take care of myself. My friends all say I ought to think twice. I can take care of myself. I don't need nobody's advice. Great song. Thank you. You know, so things got off to a good start. And then the follow-up record was at this moment. Right. And uh, and what happened was they had a great promotion man named Bernie Grossman, and he got into a, a, a tiff with the, the the boss and quit. Mm-hmm. And so they the guy that that came in to replace him really didn't know what he was doing, and and the, and at this moment only went up to number seventy nine mm-hmm. on the charts. And shortly after that, uh, you know, the Japanese said, well, this is not working, and they they pulled the plug on the label. Yeah, yeah. So that was that. So now... They kind of back to square one. Yeah. Well, yeah. now another five years go by, and, and no record deal. I mean, I'm... Can I ask you one other question? I'm sorry to interrupt again. Since Dolly Parton happens, are you now more financially secure than you were before, I, and I don't mean like you got one big windfall fall of money, but are you making royalties off of that song that allow you to live maybe a little more comfortably than you were before, or no. what's your is your life any different really? Not really. I was getting a, a yearly advance from Warner Brothers. Okay. Uh, that that was basically enough to live off. Okay. It wasn't. It was wasn't enough to live like a king. Sure, got you know, it. Okay. I had a I had a nice apartment in a nice clean neighborhood. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't have to live in the slums. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I had done that in the sixties. Yeah, right. So Dolly Parton plus the your popularity in L.A. as a club singer. You could was make a, a living. You know, yeah, you could do it. Okay. I wasn't getting any any even close to rich. Right. But you know, I'm frugal. And my needs were not great. I don't. I never drank or did drugs or anything like nice. that. So I didn't have those kind of expenses. Good for you. Yeah. My old songwriting mentor from New York was a fellow named Chip Taylor. That's John Voigt's brother, right? Yeah. I'm blanking on. Well, he's written big songs. Uh, Wild Thing, Angel of the That's Morning. It. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So 
So I knew John from way back, and he came in the club one night, in the Troubadour one night, and, and he said, man, he says, what you're doing up there? He said, he said, I've never seen a singer do what you do. Wow. He said, most singers just get out there and manipulate the audience. You know, I'm going to make you laugh, I'm going to make you cry, I'm going to make you horny, I'm going to make you dance. Mm-hmm. He said, you don't do that. He said, you just lay it out there, and and you let them feel what they organically will feel. Right. He said, that's what all the greatest actors do. Interesting. He said, you should come to this acting class I go to. I said, John, I don't want to be an actor. You know, and yeah. he, was very, he was very persistent. And he, so he finally dragged me to this class. And, and I saw these guys up there working out. Uh, and and I, I kind of liked it. I mean, it was it was a totally new thing to me because I'd never even considered acting. And uh, after a while, I started getting some jobs. I, I got a movie called uh, Buckaroo Banzai. I started doing television shows, you know, and so I was. That's nuts. I, I started eking out a living as an actor. Yeah. And then alongside this, the music stuff, still going yeah. on. I mean, right. by this time, my Warner Brothers deal had uh, had uh, ended, and I chose not to uh, renew with them because I was making enough money as an actor. Mm-hmm. So that, like I say, that that lasted about five years, and then one day, I get the golden phone call. Yeah, here it is. This guy goes. The moment. Me. He says, "My name is Michael Whitehorn, and I." produce and write for a show called Family Ties. He said, uh, we were at the club the other night, and we heard you sing a song that we thought would really be good for uh, an episode we have coming up. And, you know, he couldn't mm-hmm. remember the name of it. <laughs> right. So we figured out that it was at this moment, and uh, yeah. I said, well, call Warner Brothers, and, you know, they'll license the song to you. And by this time, I had had uh, a number of songs on television shows. Oh, had you? Okay. Yeah, but you know, it's just you know a few hundred sure. bucks and yeah, and you feel good and it's not a big deal. But but this that time, everything. I, this time I got mail. Yeah, I've never gotten mail before. You know, who's the singer? What's the name of the song? Blah, blah, right, blah. right. So I said, so this this time, you know, by now I'm like pushing forty. Mm-hmm. You know, wondering what the rest of my life is going to be like, and yeah. I, I, I got to do something here. And so I, I, I said, let me see if I can get a record company to let me re-record at this moment. Mm. And nobody was interested. Oh, but wow. Nobody. So one day I'm having lunch with this guy that ran this little oldies label called Rhino Records. Mm-hmm. His name Richard Foose. Yeah. We would have lunch periodically, and we'd argue over whose version of Mustang Sally was. Ah, nice. I love stuff like that. Yes. That's that's what our, I mean, that that was the kind of friendship we had. Those were the best. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so in the course of our lunch that day, I said I told him about family ties, and I said, uh, Richard, how many records do you need to sell to break even? And he said, Well, we have a low overhead at this company. Mm-hmm. He said we could probably break even on uh, about two, three thousand albums. I said, I said, what if I guarantee you 2,000 albums? Mm-hmm. Uh, would you put out uh, a compilation of, of my two alpha albums? You know, I'll, I'll compile it, and I'll write the notes, and 
mm-hmm. was the same as the story of the episode, Boy Loses Girl. Yeah. And this time, NBC called up uh, Rhino Records and said, we got more phone calls than for any time in the history of the network. Not nice. I mean, the, the, the phones were the, broke the system. Right. And uh, and now you got people calling, and, and uh, this time they had the information, you know, who's the singer, mm-hmm. what's the name of the song, where can we get mm-hmm. it? And they had it in the stores, mm-hmm. you know, from from the previous year. Yeah. So now you got people are calling radio stations. I mean, there was no Rhino didn't know the first thing about payola or promoting yeah. records because they weren't in that business. Right. You know, they were in the business of oldies, you know. So you just put it right. out there and people find it. Mm-hmm. But contemporary music was not their thing. So. This was a record that took off totally on its own, and they—I mean—they hired a guy, a, a prominent uh-huh. guy, and he'd have me come into the office every day, and I'd call up radio stations, and mm-hmm. I'd do promos. Hi, this is Billy Vera. I listen to KRAP when I'm on in, in Bum, you know, when I'm in wherever, and yeah, yeah, and, and I, you know, I do all these interviews, and and, and that that I guess that helped too. But the thing Gosh. starts leaping up the charts, yeah. jumping over this one and that one and Madonna and everybody. And next thing you know, at 42 years old, <laughs> I got a Isn't number one much? record. That's I'm insane. on American Bandstand. You yes. know, little 15-year-old girl screaming at me. Yes, yes. And, and I'm on Johnny Carson, you know. Yes. We ended up I was watching Carson that clip nine times. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I was watching the clip of you over there talking to him. Anytime he's bringing like a someone who's performing, usually it was a stand-up comedian over to the couch. That means you've arrived. You you're being yeah, he like didn't, he, he, his, his blessing. His policy was not to bring singers to the right, couch. but he brought you because he, because he felt singers are dumb and they they don't know how sure. to talk. They didn't have good yeah yeah. So but but my, he brought you as over. It turned out my music agent, Danny Robinson, who's still my music agent. Uh, his father managed Doc Severinsen for 20 years. Oh, wow. So Danny was part of the Tonight Show family, in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. So he told him, and Bud told him, his, Danny's father told him, they said, they said listen, you, you should bring Billy over. Not that they didn't do it the first time, mm-hmm. but he said, you should bring Billy over the couch one of these times because he can talk. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, Johnny did, and you know Johnny knew my dad, and Ed McMahon knew sure. my dad from back in the New York days. So I guess that might have. Yeah. You know. He did. I noticed he seemed very comfortable talking to you, like you guys were old friends or something the greatest, like that. There, there, nobody will ever be as good as he was. No, he won't. No. Because never. you know why? He made you the star. Yep. You yep. know Letterman and some of these other guys. They try to make jokes at your expense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, they, you know, it's about with those guys. It's all about them, right? But and I think Jimmy Fallon is more in the Johnny Carson vein, right? Right. But but most of them, you know, they 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 don't have Johnny's gift of and and no. it, it was a very no. simple gift. He yeah. just he he said, I'm on here five nights a week, man. I'm gonna make them the star, the my guest right. the star. You know, I'll just be the guy that reacts, right? And and that was his genius. Yeah. And you yeah. know what? And years later, after he died, on Facebook, uh, I I get a, a guy friends me on Facebook, and he said, uh, 
always wanted to say this to you. He said, I was I was Johnny's bodyguard over at NBC. Mm. And he, you were his second favorite singer. That's why he had you on the show so many times. Wow. I said, well, who was first? Yeah. <laughs> he said, Tony Bennett. He said, really? I said, wow, is what I said. That is incredible, Billy. And and Dick Clark was really good to me, too. He he put me on, not only on Bandstand a few times, but he put me on every show that he produced. That's incredible. Yeah, he had me as a presenter on American yeah. Music Awards. He had me yeah. on this this other music show he did. He, he, had, he even had me on a um, very loyal guy. He did a pilot. He produced a pilot uh, for CBS for... Frankie Avalon, mm. where Frankie played uh, a has-been rock and roll singer. Oh, really? Who lived in a crummy apartment and 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 he he eked out a living doing cruise ships and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. He's the kind of guy that kept eight by ten glossies of himself by the sure. door so that he could give them to the pizza delivery guy instead of right. a tip. Right, know? right. And so I yeah. played one of his his old pals from the rock and roll days. No way. But what happened was with that Crazy. was a new regime came in at CBS, mm. and mm. you know they they drop yeah. everything and they bring in their own things. But so how are your I tell fortunes that story to changing? To show how what a loyal guy. Dick oh, Clark totally. Was. He was he was Dick, really great to me. Legends. I mean, two of the biggest broadcasting legends in history. Absolutely. Dick Clark and Johnny Carson, and they're both huge fans of yours. That's got to yeah, be Dick, amazing. I mean, Dick even came to the club to see us. Oh man! And he never. Wow. Went, and his wife told me he said he and he came to my wedding. You know, I got married a second time. Really? He came to my wedding, and his wife told me he said he never goes to the clubs to see anybody, but he really likes you. That's incredible. So, yeah. so how were your fortunes changing? I mean, you've, you know, I, I was trying to look. I don't even remember. Was there, was there a proper Billy Vera and the Beaters album for people to buy? It was like oh, the yeah, greatest was hits a, it, package, it was, wasn't it? It was a hit. It was a hit record. Uh, oh, it, well, what it was, it was it was the best of my two alphas. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. By re, by request was that by the name request, of it? And it was yeah. it was a hit album. You know. Yeah. Okay. Also. So, do you have an idea of how many units sold of that album? Well, it's a gold. It was a gold album. So oh, good. Okay. The single, the single went gold as well. Good. Okay. Now I noticed though that there's no second single, right? Well, here's where Rhino screwed up. That's what I thought you were going to say. Okay, yeah. let's hear it. You know, people that know about Top 40 Radio or Contemporary Radio, and, and Motown was the master of this, mm-hmm. is if the public buys X, you give them X for the follow-up. Mm-hmm. You don't try to change up. Right. But what what somebody told Rhino to try to give them some advice well, you should put out a fast song for the net for the follow-up because it's easier mm. to get played radio play on a fast song. Okay. So what they stupidly did was, or not stupidly, ignorantly did, mm-hmm. was they put out "I Can Take Care of Myself," which had been a hit five years earlier. Right. <laughs> you know, where's they what they should have done? this again. Yeah. They, they should have put out another tearjerker ballad. Yeah. Yeah. And we had we had two of them on the album. One was a twelve-minute record called yeah. "Here Comes the Dawn." To yourself. I'm not that strong. I'm not that brave. 
Sometimes I think that I won't make another day Since you've been gone All I ever seem to do is cry Oh yes I cry I'm not ashamed Sometimes it only takes the mention of your name To set me off To wondering if my eyes will ever dry And here comes the dawn again No sleep last night but that could have been edited. You edit off the, uh, the sure. recitation at the beginning, fade out the fade you yep. know, at the end, yeah. and make it radio or hopeless yeah. romantic. Uh, could have been a, another good one. But yeah. they didn't. They didn't know to do no. that. And I wasn't signed to Ryan, so I was a free agent. Oh, okay. Now that was that worked in my favor because I had no management. I had I had a handshake deal with my agent. And I had no ties to a record company. Okay, okay. So now you can imagine what was happening. Already my phone was ringing from 6 o'clock in the morning to 2 o'clock in the morning. Of course. So, uh, man, it was like tough keeping up with that. So I, I chose a manager, management company, that were that were really big. They, they had Dolly Parton and Neil Diamond, a lot of big names. One of the kids that was assigned to me said, here's what you do. You... You keep your number, and you yeah. put a machine on there, and you never answer it. He said, then right. you get a private line, and the only people you give it to is your your family and your your best friend and your right. and your manager and your agent. Yep. You know, and and then that's the only phone you answer, and then and then on the machine you call back in the order of priority, and that really took a lot of weight off of me. So. Anyway, I, I, I get yeah. with them, and, and now I got record companies calling because the word got out that I was a free agent. Right. And so all these people I couldn't get on the phone, you know, a month earlier, suddenly are my new best friends. They, you know, there. And I chose Capitol Records mm. because it's one of the greatest labels. Sure, there. of course. And the guy that that called me was Joe Smith who had just taken over as the president of the company, he said, I want you to be my first signing. Mm. I said, great, Joe. I figured, mm -hmm. and, and I, as it turns out incorrectly, I figured that with the boss behind me, they'd have to do the job. Mm -hmm. So we right. went in, we made an album for Capitol with my old friend from Atlantic, my Atlantic days, Tom Dowd, producing. Legend. Yeah, yeah. Well, my second Alpha album was I brought in Jerry Wexler to produce that. Yeah, another one. I mean, you're just surrounding yourself with legends along the way. With my Atlantic, my, from my Atlantic day, I was <clears throat> I realized that how lucky I had been as as a young kid to mm -hmm. be at Atlantic Records with those kind of people of that caliber, you know, and that were mentors to me. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we make this album for Capitol, and it, it took longer than expected. And 
even though we had the great Tom Dowd on there, and we had mm-hmm. real, real good songs, and it it didn't really do anything. This know? is the retro Nuevo album, yeah. right? I feel just like a madman because I don't know where to start. I'm scared as hell to tell what's deep down in my heart. And I feel like I can cry. on all those magazines and I never even been to Paris and I know you might find this hard to believe but it's true it's been 20 years since I felt the things that I'm starting to feel for you and then I look into your angel face and try to understand how you're feeling during this time and how your fortunes are changing during this time. You have one of the most unique number one albums in rock history, you know? Did you feel like, you know, after years of toiling away, I finally made it? Or did you recognize it for what it was at the time, which is sort of like, you know, I'm different than what else is out there? Who knows how long well, I can I've write this? I've always known I was different than what. Yeah, I that's true. Been. You have been. You know, and yeah, I, that, that's that true. That was a conscious decision, is to be myself. But yeah. I also knew that a, I was 42 years old, hmm. and I knew that what had happened to me was pretty much of a fluke. Yeah. Okay. You know? I mean, that's I, what I wanted to know. Yeah. I realized at this moment it was a worthy song, and it and it deserved sure. its success. Absolutely. Because it moved a lot of people. You yep. Know. But I, I I realized the difficulty of of following up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I knew that that uh, it was either you know I either had to do it or it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So you know the the, the single off of the Capitol album. Uh, did go to number nine on the adult contemporary chart. Oh, good. It doesn't really okay. mean anything. Well, it's getting out there. It was on a soap. You know, they used it on a soap. Okay. It was mm-hmm. some, one of the couple's songs, I think Days of Our Lives or something. Okay. But, you know, it, it really didn't really didn't take off. And then Joe left the company. And now later, not much later, but about a year later, an old friend of mine from my New York days, from Connecticut, actually, Michael Cuscuna, and who I remained in touch with. We were really good friends. He was—he's one of the great jazz producers uh, mm-hmm. of modern times. He—he he worked for Blue Note Records, which was a subsidiary of Capitol. So uh-huh. he, he had seen what was going on on my Capitol record, and we talked about it. And he said, "Well, he said that was—he said your problem was." He said you were the, you were Joe's boy. Oh. He said, but Joe mm-hmm. doesn't do the day-to-day work on promoting yeah. and selling your record. He said that's the A and R guy. Who, right. And B, the A and R guys probably resented that you were Joe's boy. A, Maybe. And B, there's nothing in it for them if you succeed. 
Right. He said, if you if you fail, they, there's nothing for them to lose either. Right. Right. It's, it's Joe's fault. Yeah. If you succeed, it was Joe's win. There was no incentive for them to work your record. Yeah. These politics are a common story that comes up in this podcast. Almost that, everyone I've talked to. So above my head. Yeah. It's you not. Know. That's it. It's not the artist's fault. It's out of their control, and it's some inner workings of their label that they are just the victims of. Yeah. And it affects their life forever. But the label continues on. You know, it's yeah. a it's a blip on their screen, but you're impacted for the rest of your life. It is so sad, but it is a common story on this podcast. Almost everyone I've talked to has had some kind of story like that. It's really yeah. a shame. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's what happened. But luckily, you know, the, the blue-collar people at Capitol all like yes. me. And so Bruce Lundvall, who ran Blue Note, you know, he, you know, he was aware of me because, you know, he ran Capitol's East Coast office as well as Blue Note Records. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he, he got the bribe. They signed, he signed Lou Rawls to the Yeah. And so he got the bright idea, and he said to Michael, he said, you know, I'd like you and Billy to produce Lou. Makes sense. He said, uh, you know, uh, why don't you, why don't you, let's get together with him and have a meeting with him and his manager and yeah. see how you hit it off. You're probably the ideal guy. You're cut from the same cloth. Yeah, and 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 Bruce said, I don't want to. He said he's been making these these crummy uh, Vegas disco albums for mm. the last few years, and they're not selling mm. on these other. Yeah. He was on another label. And he's, he's, his career's in the toilet right now. He says he said, what I, so it, it's like starting a new artist. He yeah. said, let's take him back. And this was Bruce's idea. He said, let's take him back to the, the, the kind of music that people originally loved him for back in the mm-hmm. original days of the blues jazz. He said, he said, Billy's a great song man. You know, he knows songs. Find some songs some of Billy's songs and uh, you guys and then Michael knew all these great jazz musicians and so and so we did it and the first yeah. album that we made with Lou called At Last uh, went to number one on the jazz chart At last My love has come along My lonely days are over And life is like a song Ooh, at last The skies above are blue My heart was wrapped brought his career back. Yeah, amazing. He did two more, and they were in the top five as well. It's great. And, and so, you know, and yeah. ended up cutting seven of my songs over the years. And Well, it's clear that you were savvy enough, and whether you did this consciously or not, maybe, I, you know, I'm realizing as we're talking and I've been researching you, it's in your DNA to do this, but you just diversified. Well, you, that, I mean, that, I you've had a million different things going on, right? Well, yeah, I realized at one point that the age of specialization was over. 
and you couldn't just be a singer. You couldn't just be a writer. You couldn't just be an actor anymore. If you yeah. wanted to, to, to make a, a, a good living as opposed to a survival living, yeah. you, you had to do a lot of different things. Because in show business, you know, this aspect of your career may be doing well this year, but next mm-hmm. year it won't be. And then maybe this other, maybe the singing will be better next year. Maybe the right. writing will be better the year after that. Maybe the acting will be better the year after that. So, some, but if you do enough things well, something is always going to be doing good for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's when I started doing that, and and then, you know, I I got into uh, producing reissues. Yeah. Now this okay. So this music. is what I'm really interested in. One quick thing I got to tell you, I don't think I've ever seen The King of Queens, unfortunately. <laughs> but as a kid, I loved Empty Nest, and I still watch the uh, reruns, and it has never been lost on me. But the voice in the theme song is good old Billy Vera. Just how we do it is no mystery. One by one, we fill the days. We find a thousand different ways. Sometimes the answer can be hard to find. That's something I will never be. I'm always here for anything. I'll be one to share it all as life goes on. We share it all as life goes I, I mean, I knew on. it as a child. There's a, there's a comforting feeling to hearing your familiar voice wherever oh. you hear it. So I just had to put in a little plug that every time I still to this day will watch an Empty Nest rerun, I get a little... I get a little smile on my face. Ah, there's good old Billy Vera oh, singing yeah. the theme song. I just want you to know I feel that way. Thank but, you. Well, that sure. was good. That, that, that lasted four years. Yeah. And uh, uh, King of Queens lasted nine years. My eyes are getting weary. My back is getting tight. I'm sitting here in traffic on the Queensboro Bridge tonight. But I don't care because all I want to do and drive right home to you Cause maybe all my life I will be driving home Now that was like having a hit record Because you know, <laughs> I can imagine yeah. Because you know you get See you, 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 as if you're the singer as opposed to the musician uh-huh. you're, you're in the same union that the actors are in which Screen Actors Guild So they I sang that song once. Well, actually twice. I did this take two for safety. <laughs> take two, classic. And I get the same money that the actors get. Really? Every time that song, that show is No. Played. Oh, good for you. So, it, like I said, financially, it was like having a hit record. Yes. Well, let me ask you this. When you, when you were asked to sing that song, did, were they looking for you specifically? We want Billy Vera's voice on this. Or were they looking for a Billy Vera type? You know, like someone singing a jingle or something like that. Most people who sing kind of jingles by that point are sort of faceless. You yeah, know what no, I mean? No, no. They, they, for, Ray, for, uh, for Empty Nest, they wanted Ray Charles. But mm. they, they didn't want to pay the fee. They either. settled for Billy Vera. <laughs> so they took uh, second best. <laughs> okay, there you go. Nice. And uh, that's okay. You know, yeah. And... Uh, uh, then on King of Queens, the way that happened,
uh, had just gotten a job as head of music for Columbia Pictures, which they, and he called me up one day, take me to lunch, and he says, we got this new show coming. He said, it's kind of like the Honeymooners, you know, a fat guy who's a blue-collar guy and got a hot wife, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, a, he's a UPS driver, and he said, we got a song. He said, uh, we're, we're kind of we're kind of tied to the song. But he said, I, I want to play it for you and see what you think. So I, he, we're in the car, and he plays it for me. And he said, what do you think? I said, well... I said, I don't think it's quite right for the show. I said, it, it sounds like Paul Simon's idea of a country song. Mm, interesting. You know, a little too intellectual sounding. Yeah, you know, you know, yeah. Paul Simony. Yeah. He said, he said that's that's what I was thinking. He said, he said, you, you got any idea on how we could fix that? I said, yeah, you got to kind of dumb it down a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's you got to make it a little dumber. Uh, he said, you think you can do that? I said, yeah, we're the king of dumb, you know. I said, <laughs> I said let me use the beaters. And right. we'll, we'll just go in and we'll bang it out. Nice. So we went in and recorded it. And, man, the show took off. It was a huge success here Crazy. In, in, in Europe. And yeah. Germany. It was, I mean, I, I would get these people writing to me on my website from Germany and Austria. Then you're coming to Germany. Really? You'll be, you'll be a big star like David Hasselhoff here. You know? oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I said, wow, you know. That's amazing for you. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. cool, you know. The and line cool. items on your royalty statements must be like a mile long. Because yeah. there's, you know, every the theme songs and the songs and the people who cover your songs and the acting and the voiceover, there's like a million things on there, you know what I'm saying, that you're being rewarded for, basically. Well, and then I, I stumbled on something else that made me more money than any of the other things at all. No way. Yeah, I for free, I because I love old R&B, I did a radio show on a college station out here uh-huh. once a week, you know, playing old records. I would play. Sure. I, what My general format was uh, what, like it's January. So mm-hmm. I'd play r- R&B records that were released in January of 1955 wow. or 1953 or whatever. And that would be, and then I'd talk about them for two hours and play the songs. And it became mm-hmm. a very popular show in L.A., and so one day I get to the station, and in my mailbox there's a note. Uh, he's got an interesting voice. You believe him when he talks. Would he be interested in doing voiceovers? Man. Well, by now I got this expensive wife, mm-hmm. and I was really pretty desperate for money. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was before the, the royalties from At This Moment started coming in. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So the first one I did uh, was for Nissan. Wow. And and I just did this really, I, I, I picked a voice, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it worked. And mm-hmm. the next thing you know, my phone is ringing and, and people want to hire me to do voiceover. Wow. So I said, wow, I better get an agent. Yeah. So I I, I knew this this woman who now owned an agency, I knew her when she was a secretary 
for a friend of mine. Mm. And now she owned the agency, and I, so I called her up. And she said, yeah, we got this guy here that uh, it's head of our voiceover department, and, you know, why don't you give, give us a shot? So next thing you know, I'm making money hand over fist. Gosh. I'm doing voiceovers like two, three a day. Oh, my gosh. Next thing you know, I'm doing all the comedy promos for CBS. Really? I'm do- Yeah, you know, I'm, I was the guy that said, uh, watch the nanny. Thursday, 8, 7 Central, you know. <laughs> That's nuts, because these people aren't hiring you because you're Billy Vera the singer that everyone's familiar with. No. This is, no. Some, this is some mysterious, you could be anybody, like I said, kind of a faceless voice. Well, that but you, it's actor, you. you know. And, yes. And, and so that's that's where I really made the most money I ever made. Incredible. Yeah. Wow. So, okay, so let's jump to the – I've kept you longer than I thought I would. Uh, you're so gracious. But this is so fascinating to me. You're so interesting. That's why I wanted to talk to you. So tell me about this rock – I mean, this second career of yours is basically a rock historian, writing these liner notes. And I don't know what, even what else you do, but I'm now, fascinated that, now, by know, that. The funny so thing tell about me about that was, that was that's the least money I make. Oh, I can imagine. But it's, but yeah. it's the most rewarding. As always, the things we love most, right? Yep. Yeah, well, I I, I figured I, I I figured out many years later. I said the the thing that you love the most pays the least, mm-hmm. and the thing you don't really care too much about doing artistically pays you the most. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. The, that's the nature of the business. Yeah. So when at this moment it was hot, you know, my manager said, "Well, what would you like to do?" You know. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this or that or the other thing, but one of the things I said to him, I said, you know, I've always wanted to compile these CDs. I, I know, I, I know more about this stuff than a lot of these guys that do it. Plus, yeah. I'm in the business. I, I, I can come at it in a different way. You know, I, I can come at it as as a guy who's been there and done what these people have done. So when I interview them or I write about them, what I what I'm writing is is from a person. It's not speculation. It's from knowledge. Right, right. So he said. So he called up a guy at RCA and to go with my radio show, which was called Billy Vera's Rock and Roll Party. Mm-hmm. We we put out Billy Vera's Rock and Roll Party Volume One and Volume Two of Crazy. RCA stuff. So we did that. That was the start of it. Mm-hmm. And then a friend of mine uh, introduced me to Specialty Records, which was the label that Little Richard was on. The mm-hmm. discovered Sam Cooke as a gospel singer, and Larry was. Sure. So, you know, the, the the daughter of the founder, who really didn't know much, she she was sort of trying to run the company. Oh. And mm-hmm. so, so and she, you know, I, I managed to talk her into letting me do some stuff for them, some reissue CDs. Amazing. And uh, and they got they got really good response from the. the the R and B magazines, the blues magazines, the Right. And uh and I, I just luckily she because she knew so little, she didn't nickel and dime me and she so she let me <laughs> let me do classy packages. Yeah. Let me do Were you in charge of more than just writing something? You were in oh, charge yeah. of like I'd, presenting I'd, the whole putting it all together? Yeah, I'd pick the songs. Oh wow. I would uh, the photos. I'm guessing the photos. Or, I would wow. choose the photos because what one of the things used to bother me about a lot of these packages was 
they they do a well, let's say the Chantels or something, and mm-hmm. and they use a picture from the wrong period. Mm-hmm. You, you mm-hmm. got to match the the, yeah. the photo with the, the the years that the songs were out. Right, and you're noticing this because this is totally up your alley. Because it bugged me, yeah. So I, I said, yeah. I'm going to do this right. I wanted to use, uh, you know, she let me use more pages in the booklet so that I could put in the the recording dates and the musicians that played. The good thing about specialty was they still had all the union contracts mm. in, in their filing cabinets. So I would look up the, the record dates, in the, and I'd, and on the contracts would have the names of the musicians and the dates mm-hmm. of the sessions. And so so my packages were were better, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so then then you know I I started. You know, Michael Cuscuna said, well, do do some things for Blue Note, you know, do some things. Mm-hmm. He was doing all the jazz for Blue Note, but he didn't like singers very much, so he let me do the singers. Oh, nice. And okay. then, then Capitol, you know, because they, they still liked me over there, they, there was a guy there named Pete Welding who eventually died, sadly, but he was a oh. brilliant, brilliant reissue guy. Okay. He knew everything from Sinatra to down-home blues and everything in between. Right. And so he he uh, hired me to do the blues series that Capitol put out. Wow! So I got to do a lot of that stuff for them, and then that led to doing um, their earliest. I wanted I wanted to pay tribute to the early years of Capitol, the 40s. Mm-hmm. So I put out a, a another series called uh, From the Capitol Vaults. And so then then I got I started to get a name for that stuff, and you know I I started doing stuff for. Uh, Bear family in Germany, and they put out these elaborate box sets. He had me do a Dean Martin liner notes and Louis. Really? I do like fifteen thousand word uh, essays. You know, where I really got to research deeply into these things. Isn't this the stuff that you would love to do anyway? And the fact that someone pays you a little bit—that's the dream. There's nothing better. Right? Yeah. yeah. Along and with all the other Rhino things. Rhino let me do yeah. stuff, too. I did a lot cool. of things for Rhino. Uh, we, and then and then we, we started getting some Grammy nominations. And yeah, you won a Grammy for this, right? Eventually, yeah, a couple of years, two years ago now. I did so how long have you been doing this? How long have you been doing the, the liner note stuff, the oh, historian? About 25 years now. Seriously? It goes back that far? Yeah. I assume this was something you kind of picked up later in life, but you've been doing this forever. Yeah, yeah, late uh, about 1989, I think, were my first one. Wow, wow! I took Rhino was, you know, they, the guys that owned, that do, did, did own Rhino because they sold it to Warner Brothers, but they, their, their, their taste in music was good, but it was limited, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was narrow, sort of like, uh, like frat house guys, you know, they like right. Louie Louie and stuff like that. Sure. So I. I said, listen, there's other things besides that. Yeah, yeah. I said, so I said, let me do a World War II package. I always, you know, I always had a, a soft wow. spot in my heart for World War II music. So, you know, again, it was the same thing. He let me do it because he liked me. But it ended yeah. up being one of their best sellers of that, for that six-month no period. Way. And the same thing. Then a few years later for them, I said, you know, I said, all these ethnic groups have their music reissued. I said, but nobody's ever put out anything by the Italians. I said, there's there's a whole market there in New York, yeah. New Jersey, Philadelphia, Miami. Yeah. You know that 
that might like this. I don't know. I don't know. They would say, I said, look, ask your distributors in New York what they think of it. I said, I want to do a a, a package of Italian stuff. Wow. They, the distributor got all excited, so they said, yeah. "Go ahead, let me go ahead do it." So I got, uh, you know, Dean Martin. I got Connie Francis. You know, sure. Louis Prima, all that stuff. Yeah, Louis Prima. They used to play yeah. on the jukeboxes in the Bronx. <laughs> yeah, crazy. And and it became a huge seller for me. And then and then I got my friend to do the cover, and and my friend is a brilliant art director. And he came up with a great idea. He made he made the cover look like a Ronzoni package. Really? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. But this is incredible. You're calling your shots. I mean these people you have enough you know, you carry enough weight there at Rhino and probably elsewhere too that you can go and say, I think you're missing something here. Let once, me do it. Once they once they know you your work and they, they respect yeah. your work, you know, you they they'll 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 take your ideas a little better. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Okay, I have a couple more questions for you, and then I'll let you go, I swear. Okay. Number one is you released a big band album last year. Pale moon shining on the fields below. Folks are crooning soft and low. Tell me because I know when it's sleepy time down south. What a soft wind blowing on the pine wood trees. Folks down there live a life of ease. When my grandma. And I think it was on your website that it says this is your dream album, and I want to know why. Why do you feel that way? Well, when my uh, my mother used to bring home, you know, the Frank Sinatra and Duke Ellington uh, mm-hmm. stuff, I always loved the sound of a big band, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and I always wanted to make a an album with that stuff, and I procrastinated for 20 years. Right. A because nobody would, you know, was interested yeah. in paying for such sure. an album. Sure. Sure. And uh, but, you know, and I didn't want to pay for it myself. Mm-hmm. But then, Michael Bublé recorded at this moment. What did you think? I would do at this moment When you're standing before me With tears in your eyes Trying to tell me that you Have found you another And you just don't love me no more No more What did you think I would say at this moment When I'm faced with the knowledge 
that you just don't love me. Yeah, goodness. Ten and a half million records. And I said, you know, I was living just fine before uh-huh. those royalties came in. And I took one of the checks and I, I financed my own big band album. Good gosh. And we'd recorded at Capitol Studio A where Oh and Nat Cole and Nancy Wilson and Dean Martin made all their classics. Yes. And hired the best jazz musicians in LA and uh just did it first class. Oh. But then I said, you know, what what can I do to make my album different mm-hmm. than every other jerk ball that puts out a big band album these days? Right. Because right. a lot of them use the same old tired songs. Sure. Mm-hmm. I said, somebody said to me, well, look what, what, look what you know that better than anybody else. You know black show business. Yeah. And I said, ah. Mm. And that light bulb went off. I said, sure. Yeah, I, I'll take all songs written by the great black songwriters of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, amazing. You know, the Buddy Johnsons, the yeah. Duke Ellingtons, the James P. Johnsons, the Count Basies. And all these great black songwriters. You know, most people think that every song from that era was written by, you know, these little Jewish guys that uh, of course cramped up in an office in Tin Pan Alley. Yeah, but yeah. It wasn't all that, you know. Yeah. So that was my tribute to these guys. Good for and you, we man. Went in and record these wonderful songs, and uh, and it came out pretty nice, you know. And, Do you get to perform them ever? I mean, are yeah. you? Do you have like residencies or? You get to. I don't know if you're. I mean, no offense. You're 72 years old. I now? will be in in uh, in May. Yeah. Yeah, in May. So I don't know if you're going on tour with this stuff, or you book like, you know, a local club or well, amphitheater there. What do you usually do? But what I do is I play here in in Hollywood. Uh, there's a the the top jazz club in town is called Catalinas, mm. and I play there a couple times a year with the big band. Crazy. And then I go to New York once or twice a year, and I mm-hmm. play a club called Iridium, which is, you know, one of the, again, one of the top clubs there. And I, but I use local guys there because okay. all you need is good jazz players, and they sure. can read the music. They'll know it. Yeah. So yeah. Wow, good for you. So I'm having a ball, and I and the beaters still work. You know, we and the beaters still do it. Yeah, you're still out there. Yeah, we just worked last weekend. That's crazy. Okay, two final questions, and I ask this to pretty much everybody. When you look back on your career, we've established that you've done a trillion things. What is the absolute highlight of it all? When you are sitting quietly with your own thoughts, the one that's like, I cannot believe that happened to me. And it may not even be the number one song. It might be meeting a hero or... Who knows what? Anything, whatever that is. And then, what would be your biggest regret? Well, I, I mean, I'd have to say that that the that having a number one record uh, as a singer and a writer and a publisher uh, at age 42, mm-hmm. when you know most careers are over, I can't top that. You know. Yeah. Okay. I can't top that. It's just, yeah. you know. I'm so fortunate to have had that. And then the, the the biggest regret, and this this may sound s- silly, but I I wish when I when I was growing up and when I was first in show business and rock and roll, uh, tap dancing was not fashionable. Mm-hmm. And
And I always loved uh, Fred Astaire and the Nicholas Brothers and all the great dancing acts. And and I never learned to tap dance. And I I wish I had had that little uh, bullet in my gun. Yeah. You know, I I wish I had been, I, I would have loved to have, because I was a pretty good dancer as a teenager. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, it's just rock and roll dancing. Sure, of course. But uh, but still, you could move. Yeah, I could, I could move, you know. And I, I would have loved to have been able to get out there and tap, man. Wow, know, what a dance. fascinating regret. That is great. Yeah, I love to watch tap dancers on YouTube. Yeah, sure. You know? In fact, when I played the Apollo, the the stage manager was a guy named Honey Coles, who had been half of a dance, a well-known dance team called Coles and Atkins. Mm. And uh, and so I, I was, for me, loving tap. It was it was really a thrill to meet him. And mm-hmm. and in those days, the old timers they they saw it as their their duty to to bring you us young kids along and teach us the you know the ins and outs of showbiz. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what he did was, you know, our record was already a hit in New York, but there hadn't been any pictures. As I told you, there was no albums out yet. Right, right. So, so we in, the, in those days, the Apollo was seven days a week, five shows a day. Mm-hmm. And the first show would be in about 10.30 in the morning on Friday. And Thursday night, the night before, you'd after the last show of the previous week, you'd come in and the band, the house band, would rehearse everybody. So he said, listen, Harlem hasn't seen you yet, meaning mm-hmm. He says, what I want you to do is, when they play your chase music to bring you on, he said, Judy, you enter from stage right. And Billy, you enter from stage left. He said, now you let her take three steps out from the wings before you make your entrance. Mm. Watch what happens. Whoa. Yeah. Judy was known there already because she had been in the Drink Art Singers, which was this wonderful gospel group with Dion and Dee Dee Warwick and Sissy Houston. Yeah. And Dion and Dee Dee's mother was Sissy Houston's sister, Lee Warwick. Right. Whitney's mom, right? Yeah. uh, Yeah, Whitney's mom, yeah. So, in fact, little four-year-old Whitney was was there one night. Oh, man. She came oh, my gosh. Had her in my arms. Crazy. In my dressing room. But That's anyway, so, I, so here it comes, first show, Friday morning. I count one, two, three, and Judy steps out there, and then I, I enter, and, and I hear 1,500 people gasp. Yes. What's this white guy doing here? Yeah, What's this go, black lady we like? They're going, That's him? That's yeah. Him. I knew my voice from the record right. on the radio, but they didn't know my face. Yes. Oh, he was classic. about four or five years older than me. So but and he had put honey had put us on second, which is the worst spot on the show where they always put the new act or the Jeez. act that's not that good. Uh huh. Because he didn't know how we were gonna go over. You know, the opening act is always a highly choreographed act. Mm-hmm. You know, for to get the people excited. Right. So but we went over really well. So he comes up to our dressing room after the first show, and he said, well, I'm going to change it up. I'm changing up the show. He said, "Uh, uh, I'm going to put you on right before the star. He said, Mm because ain't nobody going to follow you, too. 
Yeah. And so yeah. that became our spot. We became really popular. Now, 20 years later, I went up to the Apollo with Lou Rawls because he had to do a benefit one night. And and the, the backstage was packed, you know, with, you know, people hanging. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Ralph Cooper, who was a legendary guy who had been an MC at the Apollo since 1934, you know, when they opened it up to black people. He's talking to Lou, and he's looking over Lou's shoulder, and he's trying to, he keeps looking at me, you know. Uh-huh. Finally, he realizes who I am, because I look different 20 years later. Sure, true. I had, yeah. I had hair back in those days. Yeah, you know, right. For one thing. Yeah. He says, Billy Vera. He says, come here, boy. He throws <laughs> his arms around me, and he says, welcome home, son. Nice. He said, and he said, I want everybody back here to know who this man is and what he did for our people. Because really? that's a big deal. To, yes, it is. To be the first integrated duo singing love songs. Yes. Nobody had ever done that before. Wow. So he said, you know what? He says, you know, your picture is still in the lobby downstairs. I said, really? He said, yeah. Wow. He said, you'll never be forgotten at the Apollo Theater. And I, I, I tell you, to I have almost, that kind of respect from your peers. I almost cried. You know? I bet. It was just, it was so moving to me. I bet. Oh, I, I, uh, I good for you, was, Billy. Yeah, it was, that was one of the great thrills. Sure. I, I don't know if thrill is the right word, but it was one of the most moving just a, things yes. in my life. Yeah, total validation. Yeah. Good for you, Billy. I think you're amazing. I'm so grateful that you talked to me. I had a feeling you would be a fascinating character, and I was right. Oh, I don't man. drink either, but if so, maybe one day you and I can sit around and drink some Pepsi's, I'm and Pepsi. I'll just hear Pepsi the rest of your my, stories. My poison. I could tell because you mentioned it earlier. I'll drink a Pepsi with you, you and know, you can just tell me all your now. stories. What's that? They're making it with sugar, real sugar. Oh, uh, isn't that great? The real sugar tastes better. Yes, I know. I'm a Coke guy. But I like the real sugar Coke, too. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for doing this, Billy. I really appreciate it. All right, Johnny. Thank you for having me. There you have it, Billy Vera. I don't know if you guys caught this or not. Did you notice there at the end when he said he would take one of his Michael Buble royalty checks and finance his new album? We're talking a big band album. You know how many people have to play on that? You know how big of a room you have to get to record that in? He took one of his Michael Buble royalty checks to pay for that. What a guy, man. Good for him. He posted something on Facebook the other day. Everywhere in the world at any given time, an episode of The King of Queens is playing and he's getting paid for it. And he posted something else about being the voice of AMPM gas stations. I don't even know what those are. They don't have those here in Denver where I am. But still, that's money. Good for him. The guy has been in show business his entire life and he's made it work. Most people probably only know that one thing, but the guy's been under the radar doing what he wants hugely successfully for 50 years, 60 years almost. Good for him. All right, next week, if you are a Beatles fan and you enjoy more obscure Beatles trivia and characters in the Beatles history, I highly encourage you to listen in next week. We're going to be talking to somebody that fits that bill very, very well. Huge thanks to Jan Makiewicz for producing this podcast. As always, we love him. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please find us on iTunes and write a review and subscribe if you like these stories. Stick around. There's more. Go back into the archives. Find some other ones. They're all good. 
You can like us on Facebook, communicate with us that way. I try to stay in communication with our listeners that way a lot. You can check me out on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. You can find us on YouTube. Just search for The Hustle Podcast Playlist, and I update that playlist with videos of our guests. Or you can email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Like a promise without words Often felt but never heard Makes me almost believe in love again Somewhere between life and love Much more than one, not quite the other How can we know if we run